What's up, dorks? Welcome back to the Bad Christian Podcast. Happy to announce today that we are just a couple of weeks away from Emery's new EP. It's called Now What? Some of the songs are coming together already. We're in the middle of tracking it as we speak. It'll be mixed, you know, first week of August or so. And then the second we get the mixes, everybody in Emory Land is getting the EP. And I believe we're going to cut a seven inch of it. So we get the mixes back. Bo from Sayosin is our mixer. Bo Birchall is his name. He's a terrific guy, a terrific mixer. And then we'll master the... I got an AI program called Lander that we master our stuff with now that works good. And you'll have it later that day if you're an Emory Land member. Pay attention there. You can join now. You may already be a member. And then we're going to have some other ways you can join in the short time period. But we had an EP come out already, and we have another one. So it'll be the second EP. That'll be eight songs that Emory Land members have of our new album. So if you're not caught on to what that is and what's going on, this is my urgent plea. Join us over there. It's a lot of fun. And we got new music that is, uh, well, I think it's the best music uh, that has been created. Also, tour dates, Hawthorne Heights and O Sleep are coming up in just a couple of weeks. California, Arizona, Texas. Those are the best places to play. Everybody knows it. We have got some really good crowds. A lot of those dates are sold out or close to it. VIP is terrific. Go to emorymusic.com, Hawthorne Heights. You know, you can find tickets to concerts these days if they're in your city. Just use the Google and we'll see you all on the road in a couple of weeks. All right, let's get to the show today. Oh, hell yeah, God showed up. Give a shit what I put in my body. You don't ever f- talk to me that way. <laughs> so if you've never done oral, then you're extrovert. No, girl, it's my flesh. I, I showed my dad my penis when I was 25 years old. You don't get more honest than that. Three, two, one, kick it. This is the Bad Christian Podcast. There we go. Oh, nice. Good job, Reva. Now, good on you, Toby. Please turn that filter off. It's driving me crazy. What filter? That on your face. It's hilarious. I know it's the biggest thing on Facebook <laughs> to make yourself look old and have that filter. I don't know how you got it on Skype, but just please turn it. it off. Oh, I immediately get it. I don't have the filter on. It's just my uh, normal face. You don't oh, have, yeah, that's yeah. not a filter. <laughs> I get it, man. Reva, you, you look much. great. How'd you get that filter to make yourself look 10 years younger? Oh, wow. How, where'd oh, you get Lord. that? How did you Is do that? Is that the new pickup line? Is yeah. that the new pickup yeah. line? <laughs> Uh, that face app's got a new one. Yeah, y- y'all got to plug in for Skype, didn't you? Good gosh. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that funny how people, that stuff gets like that? It's like this stoop, that's how, where humanity is. It's just this level uh, where the dumbest little thing, like a trinket to an eight, eight-year-old, and it sweeps right. at this time the world. And everybody does. Yeah. And it, this one little thing, like people are trying to make apps and creative stuff and get everybody's attention all day, every day. Some of the hardest working, smartest people in the world. And every once in a while, they do something completely simple, like, oh, I look old. And everybody participates. And it works. Sometimes it's a flag you put over <laughs> as an overlay. Sometimes it's this little, little meme. But at the moment, everybody's going to die laughing at this incredible technology to make you look old. And then everybody's going to forget about it. And that moment, that'll be... That would just be a thing that happened in the yeah. world and swept the world for a week, and then that was it. That was it. 
Devin said on Twitter, but I've been using that <laughs> app for years. I was I ahead of the game, and nobody gave me credit. Even no, I didn't for do anything sure to you were. It, for but, sure yeah, you were. That was my one, one of my go-to things. Uh, it was funny, too, though. I put it. I put this in the uh, Emory Land Discord. If you're not in Emory Land, go to uh, emorymusic.com. Check it out. It's cool. But um, I put in there, what if this is literally like the capital C creator or it's an AI, and it just knows, it, like you're just laying in the you know pressurized sale or whatever that you're in right now and it just it's just showing you what you actually look like like yeah it's not it's not fake it's not like we think of it as oh technology aged you no it's just an actual picture of what you really look like in the other reality see that's the problem in the bc club there's a ton of people in there that i i'm a names guy i don't look at faces and right but some but you You know there's a profile a picture attached (laughs) and stuff like that but i i don't pick up that much i'm kind of queuing off names and and what they say and i kind of that's i'm not i'm non-visual like that and so when i'm thinking about bc club people their faces never come into my mind it's just their name and the text like that's the way i think of them that's my relationship and so when they start posting all these old pictures of themselves and dying laughing at it that's for a lot of them that's the first time i've ever seen them and, oh, that's and, funny. And, and it just wow. and, and, and I just <laughs> and, and I just think of them as an old person, and then the effect is almost and like now oh, they're always an old person. Well, yeah. not necessarily, but then I go look at the young version, and it's just very disorienting because I don't know which like, one is. It's so convincing, and I've seen them make a post, and yeah. I've, I saw their face, and then when I take the time to go back to look at their profile to see what they really look like, I'm lost at that point. Like I accepted I them as an old person in my mind. Already. Like my, my lower parts of my brain already said, oh, that person that talks this way in the club, they look like this. And then I have to undo that to understand that they're a, a younger version. Oh, <laughs> man. That it bizarre? Is, yeah. So freaky. My mind is going to go crazy with the future. It's not going to, I'm not going to be able to last. It's going to, I'm going to be dead. I mean, the, 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 what, what do they call it? I forget the, the terminology for it when it's, it, the future is, is here, but I mean, like it, you won't believe it. They'll make, Donald Trump exactly say whatever they want or Obama yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or any Get famous ready. actor. Yeah. Like the, what is that called? Like it's a, a false reality or whatever, but it's, it's called like, the matrix. Know, it's, yeah. Maybe it's the matrix. <laughs> That's a good, but it, it's interesting. I mean, you won't, the, the, whatever that is, you won't really soon. You will not be able to know. First of all, like it's already that easy. Like the onion and Babylon B, they already do news stories of people think it's real. Yeah. You can't so imagine when you see. When you see, you know the the thing, and it, you're like, oh, that, he, that's what he said. And you go, no, mm, it's fake. Topic. It's just, you know. Well, so, oh, no. but see, that's Did interesting. Did you see topic. the hustle article with the avatars? Uh, uh-uh. uh what they do? They they have um. There is a company called G- Genie. I think it's just called Genie, and they have avatars for brands now. So they work with like, you know, really rich people, and then these big brands to actually have. A clone of that person somewhere else that is like their representation of oh them. Oh my gosh! You know? Yeah, yeah. It wow, looks crazy. Yeah, we're gonna get real crazy. I mean, you know how we think. Of, I'm getting off subject here, but you know how they think about Watson from IBM as almost a person. Yeah, you know. So you know, yeah. there's that. But the skill, the thing, and I hope. I'm not good with the visual processing, but I hope that my skill of recognizing inconsistencies, you know, if I see a number that's wrong or something's out of place, I can, like, that's the kind of skill that you'll need to navigate the future. Like, he wouldn't say that for that reason in this context because of that. Like, you have to be that kind of smart to to be able to make it because the media itself is not going to be reliable whatsoever. So it only will, and that's the phase we're in right now, is everybody, I think part of call-out culture and part of, like, uh, you know, if somebody says something on Twitter, you can almost for sure count if their profile's big enough, you can figure somebody underneath them will have correctly pointed out the flaw in whatever they said. 
You know, right. we're getting good at that yeah. skill of psych- deeper psychology of people's strategy. And that's a bad thing in some ways because the bad guys are getting good at it too. But we're in this meta level. The next level is going to be this meta level of reality of knowing, understanding people's motivations and triangulating and doing, you know, it's going to, and some people are not don't have that skill and I think they might be in trouble but there's lots of, of real real scary stuff about it if you <laughs> but the, even like on Twitter you ever see a parody account that you're following for a while because you think this guy's so irritating like you, you hate follow it for a couple of weeks yeah. and then you figure yes. out wait a minute this guy's clowning and I love it and he's only got like there's a couple of people that I, <laughs> I have decided or I first thought were obnoxious started paying attention to them and now I understand that they're clowning but it's very subtle and they only have a few hundred or a couple thousand followers and in my mind I'm thinking how dare this person I'm outraged at what they're saying and then eventually I go oh no they're fucking with people oh my gosh and that's so subtle because they want it to be subtle and that the world's full of that like trolling is an obnoxious example of that but there's everything right. across the spectrum to good fun to teasing to trying to deceive to a, you know just per- playing a character for in, in good faith I mean all that stuff is going to exist and so your your ability to discern reality is going to have to be calibrated on do humans act that way does this profile of that type of human act this way in this situation or not like you're going to have to be on that level so quite frightening but fun um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's almost funny. easier to do that now because of like the whole age of information where everything is maybe like yeah. so much yeah. more available then people are less trusting of everything yeah so, I mean, it might be yeah. a good thing. Yeah. We're all training ourselves to look deeply at our uh, ours and others' motivations. Is that not a layer of this? Like we're having yeah. to get in there, to, and maybe that'll be healthy for the you know population. And maybe you'll stop paying attention because you're like, oh, it's fake anyway. So much is fake. But it was interesting in the club. Ryan Davis, he's a club member, been a club member for a long time. He recommended this episode of a podcast called "You Are Not So Smart," and it's really it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And the episode is about. It's called pluralistic ignorance. And they're just talking about mm. the idea of like group thinking. It's talking about like Jim Jones and drinking the Kool-Aid and they have like real audio mm-hmm. from it. Ooh. And it's really crazy. And, but they go into detail and it's one of the parts that really got me was uh, the guy said that people assume things like even like racism in the South back in the day, like they said something like uh, 68% of people uh, believe that segregation was bad in the South. But 61% of people thought everybody believed segregation was the right thing to do. So like, like right. they, so there's yeah. these, they, so it, it would be a thing where people would go, oh, you know, it's not me. I don't, I don't care if you use this bathroom or not, but you know how people will be. So don't That's go to the right. other bath. You know what I mean? Like, That's right. And, like, and it's really crazy. And that group think, thinks that. So, and the media uses that because it's really interesting to go, well, everybody oh, everybody, it. everybody's, you know, like the. You, you choose the topic that's the most interesting. Everybody is the racist or everybody hates Trump or everybody thinks that the, you know, the wall is good or whatever it might be. You know, like they, they uh, do that stuff and so it's not really true. Most people probably fall, fall way more closer to what you actually think, but they think it because they hear mm-hmm. that the nuanced part or the smaller part has you, you, that's how like they say revolutions and stuff happen. It's a smaller group of people, but you, present that as it's the whole mm-hmm. and then or it's a majority and then people buy into it even if they don't believe in it they buy into it have it's you really, heard really the story about uh where I'm was the, butchering that a little bit too no but, but you're onto something really cool there have you 
heard the story. I heard it on a podcast last week. I'll try to remember what it is, but I, I'm not going to off the top of my head. But do uh, you know this? Is, I don't remember what the is it Romania? Ceausescu was the guy in Romania. Is it? Yeah, I won't I think know. so. Anyway, he was a dictator, bad guy there. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, I, I don't yeah, know. I, I wouldn't know. I, I would have recognized the name <laughs> if I didn't hear the podcast last week about it. But um, it's uh, but that that I remember that. But that, he, there's something and there's a video and I didn't look it up yet. Basically, where he is losing his grip on his people and they get, all get in the public square and it's falling apart but he gets up there and gives this big speech or whatever and then yeah. all of a sudden and, and but this like forced compliance fascist whatever he kills people that dissent and all that kind of thing and uh, it's falling apart and crumbling and the people oppose their this dictator but they can't publicly because it would all you know he'd kill them and then he's at, he, he orders this big everybody to come to this big square and he's going to give this big speech on TV to make everybody rally like for morale yeah. and then it gets something happens it gets quiet and then one person in the audience like yells boo or something like that and it was like it's like a record scratch and then everybody right. goes wait we can are we all are we all together exactly here that. and they just boom and that and it was over like it happened it yeah. happened on live TV and he started yelling at people no you listen to me and it and it just completely lost the whole thing right. you know because everybody thought the same yeah. thing but it just wasn't safe or fair right. to, to to say it and that that's that, 100%. the church uses that's that the politicians think. are using that all the time against you right. and we're yes. getting into the era where people realize it and i tell you a, a, a one telltale sign that I was thinking about if you'll allow me to get a dig in at recycling can I do that can I fit this in before our guest yeah. well okay. uh, uh, yes I want you to do that Let, what's interesting about it, you say that one person stood up against Jim Jones yeah. and, but they were able, they, they, he he was able to crush it or whatever and do it but like you're right that person it, and, and that uh, you know in that big square you think every person to your left and right is totally for that guy, but they're not. They're actually yes. thinking the same thing as you. Maybe we shouldn't listen to this guy. Maybe he's bad. This is really dangerous. Right. But you go, uh, it's so hard to go against the idea that they think that. And even if you turn to the person next agree, to you and told them yeah. you're thinking about doing that, what does the person next to you go? They go, right. don't, don't do it. Uh, just don't. Yeah, yeah don't, I, I'm with you. I agree, but let's I'm just, with you. Let's told, just yes. don't. Let's just don't. Like, 100%. Don't, don't say, I mean, probably, yeah, I get it. Yeah. And, and whenever you feel that, I'm telling you, Pay attention, because the bad thing about authority and all that, when it gets out of hand, which it does, if unchecked, it always does, and this is how, but anytime there's not an an explanation, it's just, just whenever there's a just because, I know you use that on yeah. your kid or whatever, but I mean, if there's really nothing but a just because, or if something's super binary, like this is good and that's bad, and if you ask a question to one of the followers of the tribe, that are all in, it's very easy to spot when you ask something and they use something like moral outrage or, uh, or they use like a, uh, like they look at you weird, but they, what they won't do is give you an explanation of why you're, come on, right. don't do that. Like it's a shame. It goes straight to like, mm -mm, don't, or I'm scared or all that. Recycling has a little bit of that. Now, I'm, I know people get really mad at me, but I've always, <laughs> I, I know something is wrong with recycling. I've known it forever because it doesn't, add up right it doesn't make sense i know there's flaws there because when people talk to you about it if you say anything at all they 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 never have any facts to say never any numbers it's just a mentality of recycling's good and anything close to not recycling is definitely bad and if you follow up with any question there's nothing there's never anything. So there's a ton of energy about this high morality thing with no explanation. And that always bugs me. It always bugs me. It's always a red flag. So I've always been suspicious of recycling, but I will, I won't even go into it. But Planet Money and NPR, who is not like, you know, they're pretty pro 
green type of thing. They just put out a big story, um, an episode of Planet Money about recycling being a net negative with plastic and a big reason why a bunch of plastic ends up in the ocean because we ship it to China who no longer wants our recycling and it doesn't matter anyway, but your plastic bottle's better off in the trash can essentially at this time. So yeah, you're still supposed to recycle aluminum, which makes a lot of sense. Duh. It's a metal that we can use and be processed domestically. Fair enough. But the rest of it is falling apart and nobody will talk about it in the same way and the Ooh. experts know that it's a negative and it's corrupt and there's all this bullshit going on but who's gonna right. who's gonna say anything bad about recycling you can't can't you won't and eventually yeah. somebody will say it like me and i'll be accosted a million times which i always am right. every time i've ever simply asked a question <laughs> about it i don't know all the facts but it goes something like this landfills aren't so bad first of all and shipping and carb if you care about the environment there's a lot of aspects about recycling that are negative for it I'm, I, I don't have all the proof exactly, but I know there's some stuff going on there. I just want to ask the questions. I just want people to use quantities and give net effect and realize right. that if you think about all the hot water you got to rinse out, use to rinse out a peanut butter jar to recycle it, what are you doing? Right. What are you doing? You're ruining the environment trying to recycle yeah. so you have a feel good about yourself and not be challenged. And whew, I don't feel guilty. I mean, anyway. These, th- these types of dynamics will push people into whatever because they'll, they just want to go along with whoever's doing the good thing. And it's right. dangerous. I mean, I, well, it, once again, if you notice the, the key uh, thing that every one of these, like whether it be church, whether it be recycling, whether it be dictatorships or whatever, the number one thing they hinge everything on is fear. The oceans are right. dead. A tr- you are the, a bad, turtle you are the bad person. Yeah. You are the bad person. You are the center. You're the uh, litterer. You're the bad person. Oh, wait, I know I'm the leader and I'm, you need to follow my rule. All those things hinge on that some kind of fear thing, which mm-hmm. is, yeah, I always thought it was strange. Like, I mean, you're coming to pick up recycling using how many trucks pouring carbon monoxide into the air and, and, and yeah. you know, all the money, like you said, the water, the, and then well, not you, to do, mention you ship it somewhere. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's going to be corrupt because it's, you know, those the rackets. And, I mean, Tony Soprano was in waste management. You know, get a, come on, wake up, come on. I What's know. going on here? Anything you can't oppose has got to be fucking corrupt. If you I can't know, oppose that, it, that's where the corrupt people will be. Right, that's, that's where called, they show up. That's called fascism. That's, that's what, I mean. What that's that what politics is. and the the church stuff and the government stuff right. and the cult stuff and it's all it's all the places where you can if you can right. build something to where it can't be challenged, you will attract every corrupt person in the world. Right. That's just how it goes. If you're on the far right and can't question it, if you're on the far left and can't question it, if you're in a government you can't question it, a church you can't question it, uh, you know. Uh, uh, science, technology, all and, these and things. And by if question, you can't question, I just it, mean it, it, like answer, which is worse. The, I mean, there's an answer to it. If you care about right. the environment, which I do, which is irritating to me. <laughs> okay, nobody talked to me about recycle until you talked to me about reduce. I don't use shit. Right. I don't use shit. Have you ever seen me get a napkin or use a napkin? No. No, I don't <laughs> use them. I wipe shit. I, I, mean, I wipe my hands on my pants. I would gladly take the the refuse that you create to <laughs> just have you clean yourself a little bit more. But yeah, go ahead. I don't use napkins. I lick my fingers and wipe my hands on my pants. I'm that is good for the environment. <laughs> Recycling is not <laughs> right. And and then reuse. You know, I get that those things make sense, and you got to do them. Yeah, I agree. But recycling means yeah, nothing. No one, no one can expect you to <laughs> rinse out a 
peanut butter jar with hot water. You don't even do that for your own body. Well, I use I hot know. water on my body. Hot water's the best. <laughs> I don't use soap. Is with it, but that's right. not for neither here nor there. We'll talk about yeah, that. You not you only use, either though. <laughs> yeah, and you only do that once a month, maybe if we're if we're lucky. <laughs> I've been yeah. working out. If I get sweaty, I rinse off with hot water, and I will address soap on another time. Bring it up, but I guarantee you, soap is a big problem. Also, we'll deal with that another time, though. Sorry, y'all yeah. got me worked up. I know. All right, we got two things here. One, we're, we are really excited uh, to bring on Brandon Robertson again. He was at the conference this year, and uh, man, what a, a just phenomenal speaker! And so we wanted people that weren't able to be at the conference to hear this. Uh, it's been a while. We're you know we're several months away from the conference, and I think we're kind of thinking about what we're going to do for the next one. So stay tuned for that. But uh, this is going to be a really good episode. Two, uh, our good buddy Joey. He is doing a little bit better, but we uh, we talked with him, and we just feel like we want to give him as much time and as much love and care we care about his family we care about him and uh so we're like hey just you are on paid vacation my friend take all the time you need we really do care about you and uh, i know he appreciates thoughts and prayers we're doing that as well if you missed and, last uh, week yeah. joey had missed last oh, week right. joey yeah. is dealing with uh i mean mental health among other things and 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 you guys people you guys know what it's like if you've had somebody that has you know, mental illness, and that often gets wrapped up with other personality things and other issues. And to be honest, we're we're not sure. Uh, we're kind of don't know what's going on entirely, but we're just giving Joey space and time. And again, if you pray, if you care, yep. you know, we, we are not certain what's going on even ourselves, yep. but we're just right. This show is kind of about transparency, so and we yeah we want to keep it more, real. That, that yes, yeah. It's not like we, what are we going to do? Say, tra- yes. You know, ask for this show. What's this one thing this show's never going to be able to pull off? If you think about it, is a uh, non-transparency or goofy fake things, or uh, what's the one that we right. make fun of all the time? Oh, give us space and privacy. You know, like right. I'm not going to be able to pull that off exactly. But so we are going through an issue right now. But I will tell you honestly, I don't actually know what's going on personally. Yeah. But when I, the best I can, and most we will, we'll be transparent because mental health matters. Yeah. You know, this this whole stuff matters. So we'll, we'll try to do the yep. best job we can with it going forward. Yep. So we love Joey, and uh, we, he's probably listening right now. So, uh, all right. Well, uh, let's get to oh, oh, oh Brandon Robinson. It's going to be pretty nice. Well, hey there. My goal today is to completely convince you uh, of the affirming perspective and get you to leave this place being on board with me 100%. So that's the goal. Just kidding. What I want to do today is share with you a little bit of my perspective of how I got to the theological place where I could embrace my own queer sexuality and then begin to advocate for that in the church. And I think anytime we begin theology, especially conversations that center around something as personal as sexuality, as gender identity, it's important to root our theology in personal story and personal experience. And so I remember the first time that I walked into my fundamentalist Baptist church. And as I walked into the back, I remember distinctly seeing this back pew. And I laid my eyes on a guy who was in that pew. His name was Andrew. And I started to sweat and my heart started to beat out of control. And I realized in that moment that I had attraction for Andrew. And the moment that I realized that I had attraction for Andrew, I also had another thing happen in my mind, a a sense of dread and fear come over me. Because I listened to what my Baptist pastor had preached time and time again. What Leviticus says 
For a man to lie with a man as with a woman, this is an abomination. I felt called to be a pastor at the age of 12. And I, in this moment, realized that if this attraction was part of me and if I embraced it, perhaps my calling to be a pastor, my, my understanding of what God placed me on the earth to do, that would be null and void. And as I talked a bit about yesterday, my salvation would be in jeopardy. As soon as that feeling of dread came over me, I ran out of that sanctuary. And I remember distinctly running into the bathroom of the church and collapsing into the stall and praying to God that he would take away whatever this was within me that caused me to be attracted to somebody of the same sex. I wanted nothing more than to serve God, to honor God, to give my life to spreading the gospel. And as I said, I felt like this was placing my soul, my calling, my purpose in jeopardy. That was the first time that I really consciously realized that I experienced same-sex attraction within the context of my Christian faith. And this was the first time that I ever had the thought that there was something fundamentally flawed and broken inside of me, because that's what my church had taught me, that homosexuality was an abomination and that homosexuals sought to undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ by promoting the gay agenda. But this experience, this dread, this fear, it's not unique to me at all. This is the story of hundreds of thousands of LGBT people. An innocent sense of attraction that quickly becomes the very thing that makes our lives miserable, that we're told is unnatural, sinful, and could place us outside of the redemptive love of God and outside of the embrace of the church communities that we're part of. This experience is just the tip of the iceberg for so many LGBT people in many faith communities. Many of us who remained in our churches are conditioned and taught year after year about this inherent danger of our own sexuality or gender identity. And for those who come to the place where they might be able to publicly admit their struggle to a religious leader or to a small group, things often get much worse. Counseling, reparative therapy, getting called pedophiles and being removed from youth groups or children's ministry because of this fear that somehow our sexual identity will rub off on some other people. For those who struggle with this queer sexuality, even those who are willing to continue to fight this and follow the straight and narrow path, the churches exile us from the full sense of community. The community that proclaims that God is love, that the God who calls all people to himself into his loving embrace. The community that preaches the gospel that's said to be good news of great joy for all people, unless you happen to be gay. It's not news to any of us here that the church has and continues to cause great harm to the LGBT people, both within its walls and in society as a whole. In the Western world, it's largely Christians who have exported homophobia to countries around the world, teaching these countries that to be Christian, to be Orthodox, to be somebody who's in right standing with God is to oppose LGBT people and our sexuality and gender identities. It is the church who exported homophobia and supported the Uganda anti-gay bill in 2014, which presented prison or the death penalty 
for people in Uganda who were publicly identified as LGBT. When this is what Christianity is producing, I think we can say safely that the church has gone astray. It's lost its way. It's chosen to embrace fear and misinformation and this antiquated static version of the truth instead of embracing the very human beings who we believe are created in the human or created in the image and likeness of our God. Something has gone terribly wrong indeed. So what is it that helps a Christian understand that we should have an inclusive posture towards the LGBT community or any community? When we're talking about LGBT inclusion in the church, it's pretty obvious that most people start by examining the so-called clobber passages, those six passages within the Bible that seem to address homosexuality. In recent years, the primary arguments that have been presented in the church by the pro-LGBT side are called the revisionist arguments, and they center primarily around how do we reinterpret or better interpret these six passages of Scripture. The entire of the battle of LGBT theology in recent years has really fallen on focusing on these six passages and our interpretation of them. Now, I want to say right up front that I never found these arguments around these six passages very compelling on either side. So I think both the traditionalist side that looks at these passages and says, when the author of Leviticus writes, a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman, for this is an abomination, that, that's probably what he actually meant. And then there's the other side that offers really good arguments that say things like when Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians about no homosexual offenders entering the kingdom of God, when you look at the cultural context in which Paul is writing, he's writing to a community in Corinth that at the center of this city, there was a temple to the goddess of Aphrodite. And in the temple, there would be sexual sacrifices where men would sacrifice younger boys by having sex with them and women, younger women, by having sex with them. When you understand that cultural context, it becomes clear that whatever Paul's writing about probably isn't homosexuality as we understand it today. There are good arguments about how these six passages of scripture can be interpreted in either an exclusive or inclusive way. But like I said, we can sit all day in that tension and debate what the context is or what these words mean, but it's highly unsatisfying and ultimately, in my perspective, quite unconvincing. Because if we're intellectually honest, both sides have strong arguments. So for me, as I was wrestling with my own faith and sexuality, I came to this place of great perplexion when I looked, uh, looked at these passages and I couldn't figure out which side to fall on. And if I was being intellectually honest, I couldn't agree with either side completely. So in my prayer and study, I had to ask God to help me figure out another way to understand this topic of sexuality in light of scripture. And as I've progressed over the years, I've centered my understanding of inclusion at the very heart of the Christian faith by starting with the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. You see, according to scripture, the gospel of Jesus is written in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This is what Mark writes. Jesus went throughout the Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying, the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe this gospel. According to Jesus, the gospel is the message that God's kingdom has come on earth and that 
The gospel is an invitation to participate, to build, to work alongside God, to establish that kingdom as a reality in the world. But clearly, there is more. Because here we are in 2019, and the kingdom of God is still not fully realized on the earth. Every day, Christians around the world gather together and still pray those same words from the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is because Jesus clearly teaches that the kingdom of God would be revealed progressively over time. In Matthew 13, 31 through 33, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He continued saying the kingdom is like leaven that a woman took and put three measures into flour until it was all leavened. In both of these passages, Jesus uses these metaphors to talk about the kingdom being this ever-expanding reality, a seed planted that grows over time slowly, progressively into a tree, dough that becomes bread that expands as it's baked. The idea in both of these, again, is that the kingdom of God, this reality, is going to appear on earth progressively over time. And along with this notion that the kingdom of God is revealed progressively, Jesus also taught this idea of progressive revelation. The idea that God would continue to reveal truth throughout the ages. When Jesus is facing his crucifixion, he turns to his disciples and he comforts them by saying, I have to go from you now, but there is much more that I have to teach you. He says, more than you can now bear. But when I go, I will send the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he will lead you into all of the truth. With that promise that the Holy Spirit would come and continue to teach the church, calling the church forward into the fullness of truth, Jesus establishes this idea of progressive revelation. The kingdom of God is revealed progressively over time. Truth is revealed progressively over time. Though the biblical canon might be closed, Christians have to affirm that God's revelatory work isn't complete. The idea that God stopped speaking is actually a really modern notion, really coming out of the Reformation 500 years ago. But the Catholic and the Orthodox and many Pentecostal traditions have always left room for the idea that the Spirit of God has something new to teach us and can always reveal a fresh word. God is still speaking. God's revelation is not complete. God's kingdom continues to expand. It's not fully realized. And just as the kingdom of God and as truth expands, so too do human perspectives. So too does human consciousness. Now, the question that arose for me when I started understanding progressive truth and a progressive kingdom was this. If truth is progressive then is it possible for something that was once considered to be true no longer to be true in light of new revelation? In other words, can God reveal something today that directly contradicts something that God supposedly said before? And I believe, looking at Jesus, that the answer is absolutely yes. Jesus was always getting in trouble with the religious elites of his day, 
because he was a Jewish uh, rabbi trained in the law. And yet, though he knew the law so well, he always seemed to be contradicting it. Time and time again, Jesus does this uh, funny little action that would have gotten him a failing grade in any of my Bible college hermeneutic classes because he would always amend the meaning of Scripture. Do you know Jesus' favorite catchphrase? He said, you have heard it said, and he would quote from the Old Testament. And then he would say, but I say to you. And he would reveal a new, significantly different, higher ethical standard. This is what Jesus does with Donald Trump's favorite Bible verse. Listen to it. Trump literally said this was his favorite Bible verse, by the way. Amen. Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's American foreign policy for you. Sorry. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. No matter how you look at that, an eye for an eye is a significantly different command than love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Jesus doesn't abolish the commandment, but the scripture tells us he completes it, meaning that that earlier revelation was incomplete, partially revealed, not God's full standard. Jesus does this with law after law, Sabbath laws and adultery and divorce. He does this time and time again. And then we see another example of progressive revelation in Acts chapter 10, this famous passage that I'll summarize for us. When Peter is getting hungry and all of a sudden falls into a trance like we all do. And Peter falls into this trance. He sees unclean animals come down on a sheet. And he hears the voice of God say, rise up, kill, and eat. Now, Peter being the God-fearing, scripture-obeying Jewish person that he was, says time and time again, and man, that light's bright. (laughs) Time and time again, if I don't go blind, uh, He argues with God saying, no, I've always obeyed your commands. I won't begin disobeying it now. And God argues back with Peter until he says, do not consider unclean that which I have made clean. God tells Peter to go against the Levitical law and to begin to follow a new standard, to begin to look at the things that once were considered unclean and understand them to be clean in God's redemptive purposes. And as soon as Peter goes through this vision, he hears a knock at his door. And it's servants from the house of Cornelius, a prominent Gentile. And Peter realizes immediately that this vision was not about unclean animals at all, but about unclean people. And he goes and he preaches the gospel to Gentiles. Again, something that was directly in contradiction to what a faithful Jew should have done. And as he preached, the spirit of God fell and the whole household was baptized. Now, Peter, like many people who contradict scripture uh, or go against their denominational policies, was called back to Jerusalem to answer for his actions. And do you know what the apostles said? They call Peter in and say, why are you disobeying scripture? Why are you going against commandments? And Peter says, God called and I answered. What else was I supposed to do? I preached and the spirit fell. And the whole of Cornelius' house was brought into the kingdom. And how does the council of apostles respond? They say, so then, God has enabled Gentiles to repent 
and to have new life, and they rejoiced. Peter's experience and this belief that God was still speaking changed the policy of the early church and allowed for Gentiles to be brought into the kingdom. If this was true for Peter, if this was true for Gentiles, could it be true in our day that God is perhaps calling us to expand the gates of the church and the kingdom a little wider, to welcome in those who were once considered unclean, declaring us clean, pure, and welcome? Throughout church history, we've embraced progressive revelation. We've seen this happen with how the church deals with women in ministry. The Apostle Paul's teaching about women and the New Testament is pretty clear. It's not totally liberative. It definitely is an improvement upon what the Hebrew Bible says about the treatment of women. There's a consistent trajectory, though, from the beginning of Scripture towards the end that moves us towards the full inclusion and equality of women into the life of the church. And today, a majority of Christians around the world, or at least a good 50% of them, are moving to a place where we can say women have equal gift and equal position and equal place in the kingdom of God. This same redemptive trajectory was applied by the abolitionists to slavery. Again, from the Hebrew Bible to the New Testament, there is a trajectory where in the Hebrew Bible, slaves are treated as property and by the time we get to the Apostle Paul, slavery is treated, slaves are treated as full people. They're told, their masters are told to respect them, even as they respect their masters. Again, that's not full liberation, but there is a trajectory that pointed us towards liberation. And the abolitionists noticed that trajectory in Scripture and took it to its logical conclusion, this higher ethic. This redemptive movement has been called the redemptive movement hermeneutic by an evangelical scholar named Dr. William Webb. And Dr. Webb wrote a book called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuality, where he traces the ethical trajectory in the Bible from the Hebrew Bible to the New Testament and beyond on the case of liberating women, on the case of liberating slaves, and on the case of liberating the LGBT community. What's interesting, however, is like any good evangelical, Dr. Webb says, while the redemptive movement applies to women, while it applies to slaves, it doesn't apply to the LGBT community, which is interesting. My friend, a scholar that I'd recommend you all read some of his work, a guy named Dr. Daniel Kirk, has responded significantly to Dr. Webb's claims that you can't understand an ethical trajectory from on the... uh, topic of women or on the topic of slavery in the Bible as being progressively open and inclusive and not apply that to sexual and gender minorities because sexuality, gender, and social class and race were all tied up in this thing called patriarchy. And this patriarchal worldview is what held up ancient societies and is what holds up much of Western society today. And this is a point that I really want to dig into. If we see a movement in Scripture from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the book of Revelation that seemingly begins to deconstruct patriarchy, what could that mean when we begin talking about how we engage with the LGBT community? In the patriarchal worldview that is presupposed in the Hebrew Bible, men are seen as superior because men are seen as dominators. The reason that homosexuality in particular is condemned, lesbianism is almost never mentioned in ancient contexts or ancient scripture, is because it was seen as deplorable 
and threatened patriarchy when a man allowed himself to become like a woman. This patriarchal worldview is how the whole culture is built upon. So when a man allowed himself to be penetrated by another male, it's to allow himself to be emasculated, to give up his social status and power. Again, it bears repeating that in the Greco-Roman world, one's gender identity was fundamentally tied to one's role in a sexual relationship. The two, gender identity and a sexual role, could not be separated. Therefore, if a man allowed himself to be penetrated in any way, that gave up his manhood and his position in culture. Scholar, the scholar Jonathan Walters argues that in Roman consciousness, the very identity of a man was being tied, was tied to the idea that their bodies could not and would not be penetrated. And despite what some non-affirming scholars suggest, the only major occurrences of same-sex relationships that were really prevalent in the first century was that of pederasty and temple prostitution, which are two practices that I think we can all say are probably unhealthy and should be condemned. But even those practices were considered taboo in their society because homosexual sex was seen as deplorable because a man would make himself like a woman. He would make himself, in Greek, the word is malakoi, which literally means soft one. And it's the word that's mistranslated in most of your Bibles as homosexual. And the other side of the coin is one man would be penetrated and would lose his masculinity that way. Another man would participate in the taking away, the stripping of a man's power and dignity. That too was seen as deplorable in Greco-Roman first century society. Until we understand how misogyny and patriarchy functioned in the Greco-Roman world of the Bible, then we'll fail to see just how prevalent these forces are that have shaped Christian theology and Christian practice for thousands of years. But the actions of the ancient culture, the cultural principles of the ancient world, are not the desire of God. Even most evangelical theologians today would, concern, uh, would concur that patriarchy, as it was expressed in the ancient world, is out of alignment with the values and ethics of Jesus and the New Testament. Until we become willing to challenge both ancient and modern cultural standards with the clear teaching and example of Jesus, until we begin to see the Spirit of God moving us forward in our understanding, forward in our ethical trajectory as we relate to sexuality and gender and all topics, we're going to continue to promote systems that exclude, that harm, and that I believe are antithetical to the gospel of Jesus. Now, I want to push a little bit further into this and make you a little bit more uncomfortable, hopefully. We're going to talk a lot about penetration, so get ready. Because another way that patriarchy symbolically manifested its power was through capital punishment, known as crucifixion. Crucifixion was seen throughout the Roman Empire as one of the worst, most reprehensible ways to die, reserved only for the worst criminals. The ancient scholar Philo wrote that crucifixion should be taken out of the Roman uh, verbal what am I trying to say? The words that they say in normal culture. He wanted it to be banished. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> in the Greco-Roman world, crucifixion was seen as the highest form of capital punishment, not only because it's clearly excruciatingly painful, but because the first thing crucifixion does to the victim 
is that it emasculates them. Remember, in the Greco-Roman mind, any form of piercing the body, sexual or otherwise, was seen as emasculating or shameful. To be penetrated was to be stripped as a man of your power and your dignity. In the drama of crucifixion, time and time again when Rome would enact this drama, symbolically the patriarchy would be coming down on this person who posed a threat to society, showing the power and might of patriarchy. At the cross, whoever is being crucified, before they're killed, they're first shamefully, dramatically, sexually emasculated. And in traditional Christian theology, we believe that Jesus went willingly. He went intentionally to the cross. The cross has become our symbol of liberation and salvation. At the point of the cross, Jesus humbles himself, not only to the point of death, but actually first to the point of emasculization. The image of the cross in a patriarchal consciousness is an emasculated image. Jesus is beaten, stripped naked, hung high on a cross with nails piercing his hands, his feet, his brow, his side. In the Greco-Roman mind, when Christ is crucified, he becomes malakoi, a soft one. Again, the word translated in your Bible as homosexual. The cross is the ultimate expression of the power for the patriarchal system in its misogyny, in its racism and classism and homophobia. And traditional Christian theology teaches us that Jesus goes to the cross willingly as our act of salvation. He humbles himself. He gives up his masculinity, his power, and his privilege for the sake of redemption. And as Jesus dies, high hung above the city for all to see, the empire believes it has gained victory once and for all. It believes that through this display of patriarchal power, they've declared Caesar is Lord and Jesus is not. But then in the Christian story, the resurrection happens. The resurrection, I want to suggest, is the ultimate subversion of the patriarchal system. When Jesus rises from the dead, it's the declaration that neither empire nor patriarchy could ever have the final word. Jesus rises from the tomb, still bearing the marks of his crucifixion. In fact, throughout the rest of the New Testament, as far as we can tell, Jesus remains with his scars. He is the lamb of God that was slain, forever pierced, forever emasculated. And perhaps this image could show us a true version of what true masculinity actually looks like. He shows that the oppressive, flawed system of patriarchy only brings death, but that the path of radical self-sacrifice and inclusive embrace is what brings about the new world that God is seeking to create. From the beginning of Scripture to its final pages of the book of Revelation, there is a clear and consistent attack on patriarchal systems. In the person of Jesus, whose scripture proclaims to be the very revelation of the heart of God, we see a revolutionary who is willing to lay down his life in order to reveal to humanity the horror of the ways of our exclusion, of patriarchy, of scapegoating, and to show us a better way. We see a Christ who's willing to assault powers and principalities that lead to exclusion and oppression, 
and who also doesn't wrestle against flesh and blood, but attacks the systems that are problematic, not necessarily the people. Jesus and the apostles understood that the problem at the heart of humanity wasn't necessarily bad people, but the systems that these people have created, the powers and principalities that Paul writes about. By fighting systems like patriarchy, exposing them as flawed and deficient ways of ordering our lives and of our world, we bring liberation to both the oppressed and the oppressor, the excluded and the included. Even those who were considered the worst in his day, we know that Jesus reached out to, transgressing cultural and religious boundaries in order to demonstrate that no one stands outside of God's loving embrace. And Jesus In his own body, he becomes the literal incarnation of liberation from patriarchy. By walking that long road to Calvary, allowing himself to be mocked and shamed and destroyed, Jesus reveals the fundamental evil in all dominator hierarchies. As he stands before Pilate, Jesus says, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the temple or in the synagogues where all the people could hear. I have nothing to hide. He turned the spectacle that they were seeking to make of him on its head. He proved that he had no desire to overturn uh, their social ordering in a physical sense. He wasn't trying to set himself up as the new emperor, but he wanted to reveal that the kingdom of God was a better way of seeing and being in the midst of the oppressive systems of our world. Jesus was trying to create a world where, as Isaiah writes, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and fatling will lie together, and a little boy will lead them. In other words, this ancient hope embedded in scripture is that a world is coming where all dominator hierarchies are flattened, even the food chain itself is leveled, and all creatures stand on equal playing field. This has always been the, heart, uh, the hope at the heart of the Jewish faith. And I believe it's what Jesus was seeking to create in his life and in his teachings. Not a new empire where he could rule and reign through the same old ways of ruling and reigning. But rather creating a world where everyone reigns and everyone was declared to be a part of the holy nation and the royal priesthood. This is what salvation looks like. This is what liberation looks like, and this is the subversive power of this vision that Jesus embodied. I believe that if we take some time to gaze at the cross, seeking to understand all the cultural mechanisms that were happening at that point of crucifixion, we'll begin to realize the true power of the gospel and recognize that it is the key to our liberation and salvation. It's all found in the example, the person, the work of Jesus. The true message of the cross is this message of liberation through the deconstruction of oppressive systems. And it threatens almost every government, every organized religion, and every other system that embodies patriarchy. It threatens to destroy even Christianity as we know it. But may it be so. Because a gospel of oppression, a gospel of exclusion, isn't the gospel of Jesus. It's a false gospel. True Christianity is a lifestyle choice. We're all called to follow in Christ's footsteps, to take up his cross. Literally meaning 
that we allow our parts of privilege, the parts of us that have power, the parts of uh, superiority to die. We give it all up for the sake of this new reality called the kingdom and for the good of the outcast and of the sinner. As Christ said, the road is narrow and few be that find it. Many like the rich man who confronted Jesus will hear this message and walk away sad. But this is why I'm a Christian today. Because the gospel contained in God, in Christ, and at the cross, I believe is the key to liberation of women, of LGBT people, of victims of racism, and every other form of oppression. The gospel is good news of great joy for all people, except for those in power, at least initially, because it liberates us all together. And when those in power see the playing field leveled, liberation and equality often feels like loss or inequity. This, I believe, is a true gospel, a gospel that we can see changing lives and changing the world. If you want a true apologetic for Christianity, I believe this is it, that this is universally true for all of us. And the call of those of us who call ourselves disciples of Christ is to take up our own cross, to participate in the destruction of oppressive systems, and to liberate those who are being oppressed in our lives and in our world. It's to follow in the canonic path of Jesus, who, being very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but he made himself nothing. That's our example. The trajectory of revelation, as demonstrated by Jesus, was not a loosening of ethical standards, but an expanding of ethical standards to focus not so much on religious and ritual acts that make one seem pious, but actions that make one a truly ethical person, that self-sacrificial embodied love for our neighbor. Earlier biblical revelation was set up to keep the oppressed oppressed, to keep those with power in power, to uphold patriarchal systems. And ultimately, this is why Jesus is crucified, because he challenged those systems. He challenged those beliefs. He challenged those ideas. Scholar Daniel Kirk sums up this argument saying that the entire purpose of this redemptive trajectory and scripture was to diminish the patriarchy as the ordering principle of society and the church. Therefore, these three categories, slaves, women, and homosexuals, they are all linked together. The point of the trajectory of God's kingdom is to overthrow this system and to liberate all people to to step into their space as God-given image bearers. If we're willing to see a spirit of God movement away from the oppression of women, of the oppression of ethnic minorities, then we also must see a trajectory away from the oppression and exclusion of sexual and gender minorities. For these three things formed the ancient understanding of patriarchy. They cannot be separated. The gospel of Jesus, I believe, and I think you do too, is good news for all people. And unless we're all liberated together, none of us will be truly liberated. And if we zoom out a bit, it becomes easier to see that this is the trajectory that God's kingdom is going through throughout the history of the church and the world. 
This is what Jesus demonstrated. This is what the apostles taught. It's what every major social reform movement has come to realize. That there's always a group of faithful followers of Jesus who open their hearts and minds to believe that God is moving them to a new place, to a new horizon. They're willing, like Abraham, to step out into an unknown land, trusting only the wild wind of the Spirit of God, believing that wherever they're going is going to be for their good and the good of all people. We must be open to moving with the Spirit of God. We must be willing to move along with the flow of the universe. We must refuse to close our eyes and grip tightly to that which God is seeking to reform, to redeem, and to reveal greater truth about. The truth is that the trajectory of the gospel is towards full affirmation, acceptance, and inclusion of sexual and gender minorities into the church. Not only does theology point to it, but experience proves it and numbers verify it. Jesus said the way we know if something is of the Spirit of God is by the fruit it bears. Do you remember that it was Peter's experience of what happened to the Gentiles these people that were outside of God's covenant of salvation, when they encountered the Holy Spirit, that experience changed Peter's mind and Christian theology forever. Remember again, Jesus said to his disciples, you will know true disciples by the fruit they bear. Friends, there are hundreds of thousands of sexual and gender minorities in the church today who have committed their lives to God and are bearing good fruit in the world. Our world today is being filled with high-profile examples of people who were once lauded as extraordinary Christian leaders and have turned out to be LGBT. I think of my friends Vicki Beeching or Trey Pearson or Jennifer Knapp. I think of the hundreds of people that have messaged me over the past five years, telling me of their devotion to follow God and their experience of being rejected and marginalized by the church. I know that gay Christians exist because I am one. And I know thousands. Our lives are shining forth the light of Christ in the world. Our relationships to God might look different than some of yours, but they are nonetheless fruitful, committed relationships with God. The Spirit has fallen on us indeed. So how can we continue to deny what God is doing in the lives of LGBT Christians? Who are we to make that judgment? And by what authority? It seems to me that if the Apostle Peter was alive today and he stood at the Gay Christian Network conference like I did just two months ago and saw 3,000 LGBT people raising their hands in worship, that he too would be convinced the Spirit of God had moved in this community in a powerful way. We must no longer be afraid of experience as a revealer of truth. Peter used it. Jesus taught it. And whether or not we admit it, it's already how we do our own theology. The Spirit of God is up to something, and each of us has a choice. We can join with the flow of the Spirit of God, moving beyond our understanding into this new work that God is doing in the world, or we can try to resist what God is doing. I'm reminded of this example at the end of the book of Acts. When Gamaliel, a Pharisee, is talking to a group of Pharisees who are are trying to decide if they should oppose these new followers of Jesus from preaching the gospel. And this is what Gamaliel says. In this present case, I advise you, leave these people alone. 
For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop them. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. May it be. May those who have been excluded boldly step into our place at the table of grace. May the systems of oppression and conformity, may they be dismantled for good in the church. May the church once again step into its prophetic role to be the community for the oppressed that brings liberation and redemption to the world. And may God's kingdom come and will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Okay, Brandon Robertson, thank oh, you. Oh, yes. Man, so we are getting into the conference stuff now. So this is refreshing our mind. We're thinking about mm-hmm. it. Now, the BC Club, we're using as our crowdsource kind of thing. Well, again, we use them as the pulse and the engine. I mean, they really are bad Christian and a big representation of what we do at the conference, so much so that we're trying to get them involved in the planning, and we're trying to alter the conference and make it even more of a special uh, interactive hangout thing and less, you know, academic and less than the speaker. So we're looking for a destination now. We've determined yeah. that the conference is going to be in something like the spring. The club yeah. rightly pointed out people have more tax money and then right after Christmas is when you have the least money. So we're going to try and fix that. We're going to try and get something kind of central that could be drivable. And we're going to try and get the lodging worked out so that it's a good deal and people can all be in fellowshipy type proximity. Yes. And of course, the other big one is like, uh, can you party? Can it be fun? Is it gonna, you know, we don't no, want a stiff church a retreat type place. So no. we, what, what we got? Where are we going? Dollywood, Branson, Missouri. What do we figure out so far? Yeah, somebody said Wisconsin Dales. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Our, our, yeah, yeah. The mountains and yeah. stuff. So who knows? We'll, we'll end up somewhere. But uh, If you'd like to give feedback on it and have fun and get more episodes of this podcast, in fact, four more per week, you can join the BC Club and join our disc, the Discord, the Facebook. We have threads going about the conference there as we go through it. And uh, Toby, you have some names of people that are joined the BC Club recently, and you can do this, sure of do. course. You can join them at thebcclub.com. We're working on updating that webpage too, by the way. Yep, we got Mitch Vandenberg, Lexi Jernigan, Nick Gregory, Stephen Dodsworth, Will Hernandez, Daniel Calcote, or Calcott, Coat, Tyler Walther, uh, Daniel Jessing, Kyle Anna Schwitz, Anna Wishitz, Anna, Anna Schwitz, uh, and Janae Hutchins. They're all in there. Kyle. I knew a, a Kyle would have a tough name. Don't people make fun of Kyle's? Yeah, Kyle's it's, a big You got to, you got to, I feel bad. I, I butchered his last name and Kyle's, I mean, Kyle's are, they, they're the, they've gotten hit pretty hard. Yeah, they've I know some nice hard. Kyle's, but it, people go after Kyle's. Well, you can be nice and still chug Mountain Dew and Surge and play video games all day and be a bro and That's join true. a fraternity. You can do all that and still be a good guy named Kyle. That's true. No, no, there's no problem with that. <laughs> Is that what are, what are the other what is Kyle's stereotype? I'm just making is that what it is? What is it? I think that's what it is. Yeah, exactly yeah, I what think you said. I think right. you nailed it. See you later, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs>